Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. My name is Stacy Webb, and I'm with BackInTime.biz. We are a publishing company, and we are also, I'm a descendant of, of several of the mixed blood communities of early colonial uh, Virginia, North South Carolina, uh, Maryland, and um, into the Southwest. Um, but we publish books on the United States color line. Uh, all of our series are based on Dr. Sweet's book from Back in Time Publishing, um, The U.S. History of the Color Line. And so um, most of our families and our shows, you know, center around our mixed blood heritage uh, DNA and also application of DNA to our genealogy as it applies to our families. And so we've recently um, started to um, a, a, a brand new um, DNA group on Facebook. It's just a few days old, and so we'll be sending out invitations for that as um, soon as we get a little more established and we've uploaded some files. 
and we're not looking for critical um, gatekeepers. We're looking for uh, actual descendants who are willing to share uh, their DNA, their family genealogy, and go in it with an open mind and um, see what we can find out and explore about our families further. And so that should show up interesting. We've got a little bit of news that I'm going to go through. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, the MHA had their 20th union gathering at Big Stone Gap. I was unable to make it this year. However, I have heard back and seen pictures, and Julie Williams-Dixon did her a new project called A People and Their People, where she has photographed uh, several of us descendants, including myself and my father and uh, several of the Melungeon descendants, with photographs of their ancestor um, that they picked out. And it's it's turned out to be a beautiful um, display. And so I hope that you will visit her uh, website at melungeonvoices.com. Um, again, that's melungeonvoices.com, and you can find it easily through Google. Uh, also, this week was the release of the Free State of Jones, and we are excited to watch it. I, I have not seen it yet either, but maybe some of the callers have been to see it. Um, it hasn't come to our town yet, but I'm sure it will be here soon, and and I won't miss it. Uh, we have several participants from Back in Time Publishing who also contributed to the Free State of Jones, Margot Williams, and um, also Marvin Jones. And they were are with the Chowanoke. But also Margot Williams has a new book out called From Hilltown to Streeby. And she uh, works through the Hill family uh, of of Uary, uh, North Carolina. It's a beautiful book about uh, their Reverend Walden, who um, was a free African-American former slave who came into Uary and and opened a beautiful church in, in the years that in the decades that have gone by. He is uh, related some way back to the Goins family uh, through the Walden Goen Cemetery, which is now located at Fort Bragg, and you can look that up as well. Uh, that's kind of an interesting story, and they have some unusual markings on their gravestones there that are quite curious. So if you have a few minutes, search for the Goen's Walden Cemetery and, uh, and, and you know, enjoy exploring that uh, cemetery there of some of our uh, ancestors. Lars Adams, we... Back in Time is currently publishing several books. One is Breaking the House of Pamunkey uh, by Lars Adams, and that book is just fabulous, and and that should be a few more weeks before we get started on final edits. Scott Sewell has a new book coming out, Alabama Tribes, which we've discussed several times here, and I'm looking forward. We're working on photographs at this time. And so we do are going to put a call out to any of the Alabama tribal families uh, to get a hold of us here at backintime.com if they have some pictures that are particularly interesting to uh, their tribal heritage that you would like included in the book. And he, it's uh, it, it'll be a fabulous book as well as he re- his his recently released Cherokee Paradox, which is a in-depth study of 
DNA results among the Cherokee Indians, which was quite astonishing and um, telling. And it's an extremely interesting book if you're interested in any of the Cherokee heritage or if you have legend of Cherokee heritage in your family. Today's guest is Tom Kingery. Um, I'm so excited to have him on our show. Uh, He's a family historian. He's a genealogist. He has extensively done research on Melungeon and Redbone and mixed-blood Native American families, and he has extensively DNA tested. And so he's going to join us today and tell us about his surname, which include Bird, Reeves, Collins, Goodman, Hatcham, Williams, Bachelor, Hardy, Felder, Dunn, Shoemaker, Carter, Dancer, Ward, Moniac, and Colbert. And so many of you will recognize some of those surnames, and I, I may, I hope my list is, is proper, but I'm sure you will correct me uh, if not. He is also a police officer in Horseshoe Bend, or Horseshoe Bay, excuse me, uh, Texas. And so he has a lot of experience with investigative um, analysis of these of evidence, and so he applies that as well to his heritage and his search for uh, his ancestors. Uh, I'm gonna open the mic now for him and uh, welcome Tom. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm not Tom. I'm very interested. My family is from Virginia, from the James River, is where our land came from. And- the Utley family. We were close to Plantation Tuckahoe. I see. Well, welcome. I'm, I apologize. I opened both of your mics. Tom, are you there with us? Uh, yeah, I'm still there. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to. Um, I know that we had met uh, several years ago. I believe we had some conversations, and uh, you have such an interesting story about your family. I'm curious. Uh, to know uh, how you even got started in your genealogy, because I think that was a quite astonishing story. Can... Yes, uh, I uh, had uh, my mother's name was uh, her maiden name was Fielder, and you know the photo album you look through and you'll see you'll notice some of them have blonde hair, but then you've got other people in your family with dark complexion, uh, very dark eyes straight black hair, and, you know, I never really thought a lot of it. In Texas, there's a lot of families that have that. And uh, as a, I guess when I was in junior high school, I started to be really interested, and none of the family really knew a lot about it and apparently uh, actually tried to cover up some of the the darker, you know, heritage, which I think is common with a lot of families. And uh, so it kind of, it, the mystery, uh, I guess, is what caused me to look into it because people didn't know. Right. So that's, that's when, what started my research. Yeah, so I would go around visiting um, all the older relatives. The older the better and as close to your family as possible. But, you know, great aunts, uncles, um, you know, especially ones that either the children have already grown up or they never had children 
they they were uh, fascinated that someone was interested in the family, and uh, so that 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 got me started. Uh, a lot of those people know about their family, but no one asks. That's why some families will have six, seven children. Uh, one of them knows about it, the rest of them don't, and they'll say, "Well, I was the one that asked." So it, it, it's funny, just like my family is the same way. My my sisters don't know anything. And about these stories that I heard, because I was the one that would always ask the older family members, just had a, a curiosity for it, for uh, especially history. And then us, us Texans are uh, fanatical about our Texas heritage. So sure when, right. I, when I was a right. child, finding out, yeah, my grandpa was, uh, you know, he told me when he was a kid that his grandpa was a Texas Ranger, and he would always, every time I'd see my grandfather, he'd talk about that even though his grandfather sure. was only a Texas Ranger for about four four to six months, it was documented. I was able to find uh, the paperwork where he was sworn in in 1871, and basically they, they fought against the uh, Comanches on the plains. Correct. So that, wow, uh, that's fascinating. And what was his surname? Field, Fielder. Oh, okay, and he they, was, you thought, felt was, yeah, and and tell us about their family, about their heritage. Well, um, they moved into Texas just after the Civil War. They had lost everything in Mississippi. The uh, Union troops had came in and literally took all vast majority of their uh, their crops, their 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 farm animals, pretty much everything. They were compensated. Forty years later, I found documentation, but uh, it, it pretty much destroyed the family, including him, and he came to Texas uh, pretty much just on a horse, owned a saddle and a horse, and uh, came into Bastrop County, and that's where he he worked on a plantation, which he always, the family said, was similar to what he was used to living on. Uh, Instead of ownership, he became an employee, and uh, they had a daughter. Their name was Carter, and they were were called Black Dutch, that's what the old-timers called them. So it took years to figure out what, where they came from also. And uh, we know that uh, they were considered free persons of color, but they, they, uh, they had two things going for them. They, they fought uh, against the second invasion of Mexico. They fought uh, in the Battle of Plum Creek against Comanche and also in the Civil War. So if you, um, you did those things in the community, uh, people weren't, weren't too concerned about uh, if your skin was a little darker than theirs and, uh, also, he became uh, fairly wealthy. So those two things, I think, uh, the census taker uh, would always put him down as white. I guess they they figured they were doing him a favor. Probably, so. yeah. I I think that was it was in Texas. Uh, they were a little more open before they became part of the United States. I think that when it was Coila y Tejas, it was. Um, a little more open to free people of color, and and we know that from some of our early Texas families, and uh, so. But t- uh, I think that the Carters actually had a, a, a quite an interesting heritage as well. Is that well that you uh, chased them back? I, I I can't get them out of Texas, but um, the family legend is that they uh, were Cajun from Louisiana. They had married into Indian tribes in Louisiana. And then came into Texas. I've never been able to document that, but uh, my um, 
great uncle had a, he was a missionary in China was highly educated and he relayed that that story was relayed to William John S Carter my distant grandfather to to his mother so that would be my great great grandmother but it was she used to tell him as a child he was one of the older children and she would tell relay that they were uh related to the Acadians who were actually deported from Nova Scotia uh due to due to war uh England won the war and so they basically refused to to sign you know papers saying that they would become a citizen and give up their religion and their their citizenship to to be English basically and so they they deported them they put them on ships and uh they were cast out to different places along the coast such as Philadelphia New York um Charleston uh some some went as far as the Dominican Republic even and uh but it wasn't well, by choice and uh, from what I've read half of them died um while en route due to the conditions uh due to disease and you know just poor conditions and eventually some of them gathered together and uh knew that there was a French colony in Louisiana so within a couple of years they uh they were able to acquire ships and and go to Louisiana and that's what the old records right. state that uh, uh the old story was anyway that they relocated to Louisiana to the coast from what I understand the coast there they were talking about is actually a Mississippi River Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so yeah, I, they, they, I don't, I don't think they arrived at the at the German coast of Louisiana. They, I think you're correct that they arrived over in the on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Kind of spread out from there. Yeah, they were yeah. Strong so they eventually they they called them yeah they they went from being Acadian to Cajun. From you yeah. know the pronunciation of the word. So that the Cajun people are, I didn't know it either until studying that they're actually French Canadians that were deported. And uh, yes, also they had, uh, quite a few of them have Mi'kmaq Indian from Nova Scotia. In them. So, but that's, I've never oh. been able to dock. This is family legend, but it's pretty strong coming down. But I, I've looked through records and that's the way some, some things are. You'll just never be able to prove it. The uh, fielders now, they go back into Grayson County, Virginia, which is another place where your Saponi tribe uh, settled along uh, Peachtree Bottom, they called it. So they're documented as being there, and they intermingled with uh, the, the local families, including the fielders married into several lines, including the Alleys, the Birds, Collins, um, uh, Dickerson, several of them that were from Louisa County, Virginia. And uh, they were brought up on charges. So they, the the, the big name families, uh, which I know you're you're related to. I think there was Goins, there was uh, Collins, Denham, and I believe another family that were all told that they had uh, they dropped charges if they would leave the area. And that's when they came down into the New River area. Part of them in North Carolina, part of them in uh, Virginia, in Grayson County. And then from there, the next generation, uh, a lot of them went over to Scott County, which is where the Melungian uh, Stony Creek Baptist Church, where some of my family was members there at the same time when people were being cast out and the Melungian terminology was coming about as as far as one of the first that we know of anyway. There's other records that, that state it too, but 
And then, then after that, some of them crossed just, I think it was only a few miles over the border into Hancock County, which is the, the famous, famous uh, Melungeon area. So we know they're, they're connected to Melungeon. And then we're also connected to the Redbone on another line because they, uh, their name was, family name was Knight out of uh, Edgecombe County, North Carolina. We had two uh, branches of that family that ended up in Holmes County, Florida, and then they migrated into Vernon Parish, Louisiana, with a large group. So we know that community, they were yeah. considered red bones. So right, that's, right. that's kind of uh, where I come across the two connections. Uh, I think a lot of it goes back to Jamestown. It's the first yeah. mixture. So I think that's why so many people claim Cherokee. If they don't know what the what they were, but uh, Cherokee was always on good terms over the years, so a lot of people would claim Cherokee. In reality, they were probably from a coastal tribe. And um, uh, I guess one of the first records we have showing the mixture was there was a spy that, that was captured in Jamestown. I believe it was in 1608, and he was sending secretly sending back um, letters to Spain. And in the letters, he mentions that there was very few women at Jamestown so that they had approximately 40 of them had taken Indian wives. So we know that that's right. a pretty high percentage. It's very high. But it's not mentioned. Absolutely. You won't find it in the records, though. That we, uh, you and I had discussed yesterday mm-hmm. um, with these mixed-blood people, it seems like you have some little documentation as in uh, the spy sent, uh, you know, message back to Spain about these mixed blood, these men that had mixed with the native indigenous peoples. And um, and then you see that the next few generations, you don't hear anything about them. And you mm-hmm. don't pick those generations back up until some time later. And they're always listed as free people of color. And, and we know that, right. that they labeled on, Around, on many, uh, many occasions. Chip Oaks Creek. Chip Oaks Creek is pretty is, is kind of the next wave out from Jamestown, the next generation. And we don't the we don't know a lot of them who they are because they went from Indian names to English names. And in the transition you sometimes the the records just aren't there. So we we pick them up after they're half breeds or quarter breeds using white names and trying to assimilate into the lifestyle of the colonists. So if, if they can move every generation a little bit further out and continue to marry white, it would thinned out pretty quickly. If they continued to stay in other mixed communities, which a lot of our, our people did, they would, they would go to places such as the Pamunkey Reservation. Uh, and then you had numerous other places, including your, your Lumbee people. A lot of the same names uh, can all be traced back to the eastern coast of Virginia and then, and then after that the northeastern part of North Carolina, especially the, the Chowan area. And then they go from there. But right. Collins is a real common name. Of course, your family, Goins, is everywhere. You just see them in every right. mixed community. These Goins show up. And we know Absolutely. a lot of them to discount and say that they were Africans, but uh, the descriptions and the records don't indicate that. We know in some some cases that there was some mixture with three persons of color, but it, uh, the, it's the 
the colonists could could indicate that they they were not Indian. They didn't have to make any compensation for them. So that was the, the thing. People people wonder why they did not want to claim black. They think they're it's a prejudice thing. It's it's nothing to do with that. It's having to do with getting your land taken away from you because people, if they continue to mix with African, that the community would eventually take the land saying that there's no Indians left. And that happened with uh, several, including the Gingaskin. And I think my course possibly connect to them. I found there's kind of a gap between, but I found some indicators that some of them of that family moved into Texas that same time period. And what, so I'm still, still what family is that? The same, the same family. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I'm sorry. Um, and you were saying that this family, you think, mixed in with the the Genghis skin and came into Texas. What family line was that? Did you say? Uh, they were Carters, and they always associated with the Perkins family. Okay. And they can, they're in in uh, Bastrop County. There was, uh, back in the mid-1800s, they married into another Perkins family that also was from up in the Virginia and Maryland area. And it seems like they continued to associate with them. Uh, there are several other families that were also, um, I believe people were had done some research in the uh, Republic of Texas, some of the earliest people involved in the first invasion and the second invasion, showing that uh, quite a few of the people that were the actual foot soldiers uh, were uh, red bones, Melungeon, had that heritage. They seem like they're always the first yeah. ones to be willing to fight is a lot of times your, your mixed race people. Absolutely. And, uh, and actually, we can follow that, follow that mm-hmm. tradition to the Revolutionary War when um, many of the red bones uh, progeny forefathers fought um, the the British had promised freedom, uh, you know, and and full white privilege of you know, and and as well, you know, like uh, several of our grandfathers fought with Marion from Francis Marion, or excuse oh, yeah. me, yeah, yeah Francis Marion, yeah, the swamp, yeah, the swamp fox. Uh, it seems like uh, these mixed blood people were Indian people were used for militia and really taught the Americans how to guerrilla warfare. And I've written extensively about that in the past um, as far as the group of men that fought with Marion, uh, Marion's men, because there were several of our progenating forefathers of our Mixon, uh, the Doyle, and uh Reverend Joseph Willis all fought with Marion, and so we brought that right into Texas. We were always used for militia, you know, for heavy, like mm-hmm. you say, foot combat, uh, militia-type yeah, uh, type warfare. I've got one relative uh, that was killed in the Dawson Massacre, which was the second invasion of Mexico, um, and I was able to find documentation of my uh, Carter being involved in that. Uh, showed that, you know, by payment he was paid thirty-one dollars for the for his part in fighting the war. But I actually found that his let me see the Dancer family, which are also related to the Carters by marriage, they um, my distant grandparents were um, indentured 
an indentured servant, I believe from Switzerland or Germany, and he came into the Salzburger settlement in Georgia. As an indentured servant, he ran away and actually found a, a newspaper article from the mid-1700s stating that, describing him and saying that he was a runaway. And then we find land records where he was never, apparently was never found, but living in uh, Camden, South Carolina. And uh, family legend states that he married into he married into some Native American group there. Uh, a lot of these stories you can't prove, but we know that down the line there were some others that, that did uh, marry into uh, tribes. It was fairly well documented. They weren't uh, wasn't that hard to you know find the connections, and then you you, you start to see the bloodline and the photos and. And, and then self-identification, and then, of course, the DNA. But uh, this uh, dancer uh, relative, I have uh, one of them, her name was uh, Lydia Dancer. She married, um, and this is from the Daughters Republic of Texas. I found there's some, several family members that are related with this. Uh, it showed that she married uh, Zebulon Pike Cottle. And they'd left, they gave a list of all the, of his relatives that were involved in different battles. So we're we're married. So by marriage, we're related to somebody. Some of them are, are by blood. We're related. But one of them that was very interesting was Henry Gonzalvo Woods and the Dawson Massacre, where where my, one of my great or distant uncles was killed. Uh, the Mexicans had killed all of them except a small amount that were able to escape. He was one of the ones that escaped. And the way that he he was able to escape, uh, he started waving a flag. And they, they continued to use their sabers and just execute everyone. So he decided he was going to fight to the death. And uh, they said that a Mexican trooper on horse tried to use a lance to attack him. He grabbed the lance, pulled the soldier off the horse, took his horse, and then took off. And he said that he was pursued by several that were uh, trying to, you know, shoot at him and and, and they, they were, that the horse was so fast, he said, that he was able to escape. And when he finally got to uh, another uh, Texan militia campground, uh, he still had that lance clenched in his hand. He wouldn't let go of it. And they, they said that uh, years later, he worked cattle with that on the ranch there in Bastrop. He would poke cattle with it. <laughs> and so uh, about... Around 1920s, they donated that to the Alamo. So it's on the wall in the Alamo now, that land. Wow. So I need to go and, down there and, and see it. Santa Ana's saddle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you want me to tell that story? Yes, I How would love have? to hear it because okay. it relates back to, you know, this Alamo stuff. Sure. Yeah, uh, I had uh, two of my relatives from the Morrow family. Uh, two of them, they were my grandmother's, uh, I believe, second cousins, married Sam Houston's daughters. And one of them, his name was uh, Joseph Clay Stiles Morrow. He was a wealthy merchant, and uh, Nanny Houston was a little bit spoiled. She said that she wouldn't marry anyone unless they could pay the preacher in gold and take her to New York City on a honeymoon which he did both oh, wow. during the Civil War. He went on a honeymoon to, the, to New York during the Civil War. I thought that was amazing because they lived in uh, wow. Williamson County, Texas, so right in the cent- central part of Texas. Um, 
But anyway, uh, years later, they had children, and uh, they're in Georgetown, Texas, not far from where I live. When they were, uh, one of the children was in school. Of course, his last name's Morrow, and uh, they're studying Texas history, talking about Santa Ana. And the little boy put his hand up and said, "Yeah, we have his saddle at our house." The uh, teacher scolded him, said, uh, "After school, I'm going to take you home and tell your mother about you telling lots." So she did this. She walked the child home. Uh, Nanny answered the door. She still, nobody recognized her. I guess they didn't go around bragging that they were Houston family. And uh, the teacher starts to explain the story about the boy saying that Santa Ana's saddle is here in your house. And uh, Mrs. Morrow inter- interjected and, and says, yes, it's in the front room. Would you like to come see it? And they actually had it in there. And they said that the kids would come, uh, some of my cousins would go there and, and play on that thing, ride it. It was on a saddle stand, and then they mm-hmm. later on donated it to the uh, Sam Houston Museum in Huntsville. So we went down there last year to just just take a look at it. Wow, that is a fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gabe had one of of this Gary Gabe Hart who passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, my my riding buddy for a lot of years, and from there at San Antonio, Texas. Um, had a story kind of similar to that was uh, someone said uh, not very many years ago said oh yeah I know where the doors to the Alamo are and everybody kind of laughed snickered at him or whatever and and it was part of our Goins family and they said yeah I do really know where the doors to the Alamo are they're in this old barn that belonged to my great-grandfather or whatever and they went out and collect, they donated them back, and those are the doors that are on the Alamo now. And so um, hmm. it, when we look at this history, it just means so much more, especially coming from, you know, I'm about a 12th or 13th generation Texan. So uh, these stories relating back and how our families, our mixed blood families, moved into Texas and, and were part of the, the founding of that state and uh, it's really quite, uh, like you say, Texans are pretty proud of their heritage, and and so I'm glad that we can be include these stories. Now, is there? Can you also tell me about the the Ward and the Moniac and the Colbert? Uh, because there are several of that group in Holmes County who are also related to the Moniacs. The Redbones are related to the Wards and the Colberts and uh, and the Hardys. Uh, this is another family that's highly related and descended of mm-hmm. the Redbones. And if you could just touch lightly on those surnames, uh, I would I would love to hear you know and the Williams. Sure. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep on going here, but uh, kind of get through some of those and the Shoemakers because. Uh, those are also a Melungeon surname, and they did the Schumacher family of Melungeon variety did return with a Q haplo, which is Native oh, yeah. American. So they're yeah. yeah there so three, uh, three of the of the of the relatives that were brothers that fought in the Revolutionary War, and they were all part of a regiment mm-hmm. that were um, uh, Indians. And Do I you know what the, the regiment was? No, I haven't been able to find that. I just found that recently. I Okay. Go ahead. So, yeah, so I didn't know that, but the, the Fielder family, um, 
going all the way back into, I believe, Goochland County, married a shoemaker. Mm-hmm. So I, I uh, looked into that, and the Burtons are also. He actually married a uh, Ann Burton, which I thought was funny, because her father was right. Richard Burton. Oh, like, where did, where did they get that name? It sounds, it sounds like they knew ahead of time. They, uh, but yeah, the shoemakers, apparently that's where a lot of that comes from. And then the Burtons, there was a guy named uh, Ace Maupin that I, I had read several uh, articles he'd written on forums, and at first I, I kind of discounted it, but I looked into it, and he was trying to say that if you do the research, you'll see the Hatcher and Burtons, are actually uh, very closely connected to Thomas Rolfe, the son of Pocahontas, that they came over from England with him. After, of course, his mother Um, died, he comes back to England with those two. And then later you see one of the uh, Bowlings marries a Burton, and in the records uh, there was a, I forget his name, Chastolet, I believe his name was, a historian, who was, who was visiting America and actually wrote about how that the bloodline from Pocahontas actually came from that Burton side and not through that bowling family. So, you know, ah. there's a bit of a controversy over it. And he goes into the background of how, how it all came about. I'll send it to you sometime. It's pretty interesting. Sure. Um, I don't think it's as strong as maybe what he implies, but nonetheless, I think there's, it opens up a, a big question mark. And I think research does need sure. to be done. They said that uh, the, the Poitras name was actually just included because it was from a prominent family, which I'm also related to, that that was his first, uh, I believe that was his wife, of uh, Thomas Rolfe. So I think. in the records, they, he, he actually showed that he said that name is probably not what a real name was. They, don't, they said realistically they, they don't know. So... Uh, right. Yeah, as far as the, the, that Burton and Hatcher family, we see those names. The Burtons come up with the Melungeons in Hancock County. Yeah. So they, they were also true. connected to the Reeves. The, and the Reeves and the Alleys I'm also related to, but they were uh, also ancestors on the uh, the Bird family. The Most of the people do the research. They always want to connect to the wealthy Bird family. But I my research shows that uh, more than likely they were not related to them. They they didn't inherit anything. They weren't wealthy. Uh, they did live in the same right. county at one time. So maybe they just got cut out at early time. Who knows? But they they weren't uh, they weren't very close related to the William Bird of Westover. If they were, they didn't inherit anything. So they were just, they were farmers. Yeah. But they uh, the bird line is very interesting because it actually goes all the way down into uh, Alabama. Some of those married into uh, Chickasaw. And one of the first governors of uh, the Chickasaw was uh, was named Bird. Yeah. So that was that was through his mother's side. But you know, I think uh, Gabe would always say Indians hung out with Indians. And I always thought about that. That's right. That's true. Because the families continuing to mix. You say that may not be sure. my line, but generation after generation, they're still marrying other people. For for whatever reason. That's- and obviously, the reason was because they were mixed themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are numerous generations that continue to do it. Yeah. Uh, let me absolutely. see. The Hardy family, that's an interesting family. Um, 
and we're we're connected to the Johnsons uh, through them also. The Johnson is a very strong family of mixed blood in um, northeastern North Carolina, possibly connected mm-hmm. to the the Francis Johnson that was Angolan. Right. I have, haven't seen a really strong proof yeah. of that. Um, That's my. Thomas Hashaw, I believe he he shows that they there was a connection between the bachelors, which married into the Hardys, and Francis Johnson, that comes down from that line, bought land from our family, but that's as far as I can find. So I haven't been able to, to document that. Uh, there was a uh, I had a distant grandfather that his name was Whitmell Hardy, and now uh, Thomas Whitmell was the interpreter for the Tuscarora. So the indication is, they said, a lot of people named, mainly Native American families, used that name Whitmell as a first name because they were mixed uh, Tuscarora. Uh, so that's a, that's a possibility. Very, but he, very yeah, he interesting. Had name. First name was Whitmell. The Hardys, um, but they they were an early family in the Chowan area also. Then um, they. Let me see. They married into, well, yeah, the Hardys, Bachelors, all those are very old families. And all, all of them uh, were, were in at early, I guess they were considered like frontier areas at the time. Like a lot of families, they would live in swamps, or they called them pocassins. So right. I, and some say the reason they did that is because they didn't think anybody would kick you off that land because it's undesirable. So throughout right. uh, Birdie County, there's, there's several swamps up there, and you'll see a lot of Goins, Collins, uh, and a lot of my family living in those areas. Uh, but they were lit, they, the land had very little value. So, right. And let me see, there was, uh, you asked about some other families. I'm trying to, oh, Williams. There's two Williams in Birdie County. One of them was Tuscarora. Um, I, I've never been able to confirm whether mine was or wasn't, but they definitely were in the same area at the same time period. Uh, also, getting back to the Johnsons, one of the chiefs of the Tuscarora was named Johnson. So, a possible connection right. is just stuff that you, you know, if you look into it, uh, it, it's it's worth looking into further because there's potential that they're from those same families. Of course, most of the, the Tuscarora. Uh, from North Carolina went up into the uh, Iroquois. And and most of them have knowledge of the families. Uh, it's a little tough getting information, though, because those families that migrated up there, uh, I think that's pretty important. But the Williams and Johnson, there are definitely two of them that were on there. Uh, there's, there's an area, Catherine's Creek and Bennett's Creek. Yep which there was a high concentration yeah. of my family who were some of the first landowners. So we, we know that quite a few of those uh, were either mixed blood or bought their land directly from local tribal people. But as you follow the generations down, they continue to show up around the Lumbee, the Kohari, which uh, a good example would be the Goodman family. The Goodmans uh, showed up as Kohari, all the way down right next to the Lumbees, and then also show up in the Melungeon. One historian lists them as chiefs. They say they were some of the, I believe, the, uh, 
what they were calling was Saponi. That's they correct. indicated they were chief. So if you if you go online and you put Goodman and Melungian and then you go to images, you'll get some pretty dark people from the Kohari and from the Melungian. So they had it looked like they had a high concentration of blood in them. Right. Now, let me see, what was the other some other families you were asking the, about? The Ward, Moniac, and Colbert. Okay, the on my Carter uh, and Dancer family, there's one researcher that says he has pretty good documentation. I haven't seen it, but he, he believes that the, the Ward family um, were actually descend from John Jack Ward, who was, I believe, a, uh, a Creek Indian trader. And then he, his wife was, I believe, a half-blood who was, uh, her mother was a Moniac. Mm-hmm. And the Moniac right. is a pretty strong Creek family, I believe, or Chickasaw. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, interesting stories with the Moniacs was there was a David Moniac that went through West Point in the 1830s, I believe. And it took him, I think it took him a year longer than everyone else. He ended up getting held back. Um, also, mm-hmm. he was the very bottom of his class, but nonetheless graduated from West Point. So he, when you look at the whole story, actually, he didn't speak English, so had to learn English the right. year before he went to West Point, and uh, also had to be tutored in general studies, but then was able to prove that he was worthy uh, academically to go into West Point. So being at the bottom of the class and one of the first Native Americans ever to graduate from West Point was very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah, so I, I had you heard first tell people that, that he graduated at the bottom of his class, they say, well, that's not that good, but nonetheless he still graduated. But then they say he started at 15 at West Point. That's impressive. Sure. And that was the Moniac. Um, yeah, he was uh, actually uh, – he, as soon as he graduated from West Point, he uh, resigned from the military because he had gotten a letter saying that his father had been drunk continuously, that uh, they weren't taking care of the farm, and he really needed to come home. So he resigned, went home, and then later uh, volunteered for uh, the local militia to fight against the Seminole and was killed in battle. I see, right, right. And the Colberts, where uh, where did they come in on your? Did they come in with the dancer line as well, or? Yeah, I believe the Colberts and the Moniacs were related. I'd have to look at that again. I can send some of that to you, but yeah, that I've never been able to establish that. There, but like I say, there's several people, and this is something I need to tell uh, you and everyone. Ancestry.com. Sometimes there's people that will put links to families that are have not been confirmed and and this yeah. one uh it has been included uh because it, it is possible but it's not a very strong foundation but what a lot of people do is when they're doing their genealogy on ancestry.com they automatically add other people's lineage that sometimes are not even close so you know that's just something mm-hmm. uh, a word of caution for people if you uh um, 
you if you just don't do the research and you're just copying what someone else has, sometimes, not always, most of it's pretty solid, but sometimes you'll run into lineage that is not even correct. So yeah, if, if you do the research, you'll actually find your correct line, which sometimes uh, opens up a whole new, you know, insight for you, and which is well worth looking absolutely. into. But uh, I've seen some where they had uh, an example where it showed the mother being 80 years old and having children, which so we know it's incorrect. But they well, just look at the birth date. You know, they just see they're just way out. That's right. They can make mistakes. The census takers make mistakes. And people uh, in our situation, for some of our families, they even put false information out to the census taker, you know, recorded false information. Oh, and yeah. I, yeah. We, talked, we talked about this yesterday that we've been digging heavily into a 1932 through 1934 lawsuit uh, that came about in Texas at Liberty County, Texas, on an original Sam Houston League and Labor to my great-great-grandmother. Her, she was a Johnson, Nancy Johnson Goins. And um, this has been, you know, of course, we're writing the Goins book, and it's just been a whirlwind of information, but this has just been part of it. But um, we have been working on, there was 96 uh, heirs, that were later came forward and said they deserve part of her estate and they kind of had to prove why. And so we have been chasing these people back. And, and like you say, when you do the, your, the research yourself, it really opens up doors uh, when you can find a valuable document like that and search each of those heirs back. We have taken our genealogy of the Goins family uh, back a uh, hundred years in just a matter of a few hours working on some of these genealogies. And so you're correct. It's, it's, uh, even though we look at the records, I look at the census records one year, he claimed he was born in Illinois. One year he pl- claimed he was born in Arkansas. One year he was every different age. There was no doubt the same man, but you really have to study those mm-hmm. records to identify yeah, them. And, you're, and you're correct. To the courthouse too. I went to uh, Comanche County Comanche County Courthouse because my um, uh, great grandfather William John S. Carter, uh, when he when he was older, he moved up there because he had two of his children living up there, and he bought land. So all the records I find always have him as it showed that he died in 1880, but they don't have a, a month or anything. Well, I, I was able to find him on land deeds up until 1894, so I know that that's false. And just a, a simple, you know, bit of research and, uh, you know, being a police officer, I, I, uh, that helped me in going through courthouse records and also uh, the question, the big question, what is documentation? I've had people come to me and say, well, I've got a notarized letter. So that's documented. I said, all that means is that the notary recognized the signature. That doesn't mean they read the document. Right, the validity of such. That's right. Right, exactly. So <laughs> a lot of it's just a misconception some people have. You know, the old letters are great though. I, I tell people, I said, just because, you know, you you have an original old letter, which I found some from the 1800s, late 1800s, talking about the Indian blood in the family. Those are great because you're going back, you know, over a hundred years oh. where the 
where, where people are still talking or, or initially talking about a lot of this stuff that, you know, it would be generations later before most of the other family even are considering it. So at an That's early right. stage, That's you'll find some family members that were interested. Uh, here in Texas, I, I've always been told that the reason people tried to not show that they had any Native, uh, a Native American, was because the Comanches, um, all the way up until, I'm going to say, 1930s and 40s, there were people alive that had family members that were killed by Comanches. So that some of them, right. any type of Indian, they had no use for. They didn't, they didn't want to hear that. So that's when I think a lot of people started using terms like Black Dutch and, you know, other, you know, terms that, yeah, you know, I, to try to explain why they were, you know, where they got their dark skin. Because Black Dutch people, most of them, they just shrug their shoulders when you ask them what it is. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think there is uh, some validity to these these names. They just they didn't know what they were. They didn't know who they were. They just said, "Oh, they're just black Dutch. They're just uh, Melungeons. They're just red bones." And and when you get down to the core of of some of this research, you can see that these same surnames keep happening over and again and over and again. And and it's a preponderance of evidence as well, I believe. You know, when you have Mm -hmm. a family, like you mentioned, the Johnsons and the Goins. And, I mean, just it was the very rare Goins family that I have found in the United States that wasn't associated at one point or another with these mixed blood people. And uh, so it's, it's... Doing your own footwork is monumental. Uh, another problem that we always have is that we, when someone gives me a reference and they say, oh, I got this information from this document, whatever, uh, go back and find that document and look at it for yourself. Because a lot of times mm-hmm. people will leave out vital information just because it did not pertain to their particular research or their question at the time. And so always go as often as you can and get that original document and transcribe it. And um, the transcription is a lot more than just reading a document and typing out what it says. Transcription is, is based on historical perspective and not modern perspective. And so someone made a quote to me the other day. Uh, well, there was a Perkins grandmother who who had children, obviously. We don't know if she was married to a Perkins, and we just don't know who he is, or if she was a Perkins, which happened a lot in our family. We earned our surnames matrilineal and not the normal white, you know, or European descent of a male line. And so um, mm-hmm. they said, oh, it says on the record she was the natural child of this Parkins woman, and they said, so she was illegitimate. Uh, No, excuse me, a natural-born child does not mean you're illegitimate. It just means you're from that person's body. You're their natural child. And so even people in the modern time can kind of not understand definition of words all that well, and then they start a rumor that, oh, well, she had illegitimate children, and so that gets carried down, and and it didn't mean that at all. So... um, it can happen. And now you have done a lot of research on DNA. As it, and and you've studied extensively. And I want you to tell us about 
all of the tribal hits that you've gotten and, uh, you know, the European and the Middle Eastern and the North Africa, talk to us just about um, how you felt when you got your results, uh, what they mean to you, and how you're applying those to your genealogical research today. Okay. The uh, One of the first tests that came out was... Uh, I believe they called it Ancestry by DNA, and it was divided into four races. And let me see, I've got it. Yeah, it was divided into European, East Asian, Saharan African, and Native American. Well, in those early days, they couldn't distinguish as well between East Asian and Native American. So uh, when I got my results, it said uh, approximately 92% European and then 8% East Asian, which just baffled me. I I could not figure why I would have uh, 8% East Asian. That was before uh, anybody else in the family had been tested. And... uh, you know, so I, I just thought maybe it was a fluke. But uh, so that that was really one of the first tests. Uh, after after speaking to several people, they said, well, if you have Native American family, East Asian, the markers are very similar, so that's probably what it is. Uh, it did show a possibility of minor amounts of uh, Native American also, but very in very low degrees. So. Uh, that was one of the first tests, and I think, uh, did you take that one also at early stage? Um, no, my dad did, and, and one of my siblings did uh, uh, an early, an early, you know, four ethnicity test, you know, black, brown, white, and yellow, I don't know, whatever. And, yeah, we did, um, and my dad came back like 7% Native American, and um, I came back later on as 0% Native American. But it's been a long time since I've tested, so uh, I I spend all my money testing other family members so we can figure out our genealogy. I, I did an extensive ethnicity test on myself and my older sister, who is only a half-sibling, so I could kind of separate. I've tested a lot of the family, so because... I have half. I'm I'm fortunate to have half siblings that came from my mom and not from my dad, and so we were able to go like compare. Um, you know, mm-hmm. not everybody has that, but you further tested as well autosomal and and gotten down to some uh, some real finite uh, mm-hmm. contributions to your DNA, and so. Um, the the most recent ones, I think, you know, as you, you've tested over the years, different testing. And so what is the most up-to-date test that you've gotten? And uh, were you shocked at, at some of these? Uh, because some of your uh, DNA includes, like, the Moa Choctaw and the Chickasaw and Sioux and Chippewa and Portugal and India, Canary Islander, Tejano. Mediterranean, Asia, Arabian, North African, Central, and Athabascan. And so that and, and how you feel about all of these ethnicities that came together to make, to make you. Yeah, the, uh, one of the bit first, I guess, uh, 
companies that did a, a fairly thorough uh, biogeographical autosomal DNA was uh, DNA tribes. They use uh, STR markers versus uh, the newer tests all use SNP, with, and, and they, they use a lot more markers. I mean, what are they up in the, I think, hundreds of thousands or millions now? And these older tests were using I, STR markers. Right. Yeah, I don't know what how many there are to now, but it's the number is really high. And the STR markers were there was fewer markers, but I've always heard that your DNA test is only as good as your database. So looking at the database samples for Native American, your uh, your actual your DNA tribes at the time had a, a much better sample database, including uh, groups like uh, Athabascan, Lumbee, uh, Grand Chaco, you know, a, a lot of different uh, groups that, um, you know, the newer tests, you know, I, I understand that they're, they're starting to add those groups in there, these different tribal groups in there, but um, the, the, DNA tribes, actually, I'll give you a good example. Uh, my wife is Hispanic, but her they have known Native American from Mexico. And uh, there's such a large database of Hispanic people that it matched her almost perfect. Now, she has, you know, uh, my last name on, so when this, the test was submitted, they didn't know what race she was. And when it came back, it, it was almost perfect with Mexican as being number one. And then Indian, uh, pretty much all the secondary stuff was Native American matches to Mexican tribes. So I think the, here again, the, it's, it has a lot to do with the database, the sample database. And uh, they have a really big Hispanic, uh, you know, sample database. So it was really right. accurate. I hers was just spot on. So it really impressed me. So it makes you have you know confidence in it. And you know, uh, but yeah, I I did get um, uh, you know certain matches that were a little bit baffling. It, again, the uh, the India came up on mine and on my uh, my grandfather's brother. The only two surviving people yeah. that I could test. Uh, the two oldest ones, anyway, in my family was a grandfather's brother and sister. Uh, the sister's the only one still living, and she showed matches to Athabascan Indian, which is Navajo and Apache, which I believe is probably because not that we have that blood, but Native American, uh, other Native American groups also have similar markers to them, so it, it paralleled to them. And uh, right. it was a significant amount enough to show up, uh, you know, on the Native American panel that they offer. Then right. Uh, right. my uncle, though, his number one match was India. Number two, Japan. And Japan, according to some researchers that do DNA, believe that they parallel close, almost uh, as close as you can get as far as any other Asian group, to Native American. That's controversial. Some people right. disagree. But, but So he showed Japanese mm -hmm. as number two. His India results, though, uh, were not found well, as high, anywhere near as high on my uh, aunt, which she did show 
50% of her markers did match, just like a brother and sister would. So there's there's no doubt right. they're brother and sister, but, you know, you never know what you're going to get. That's why I think we were talking about the other day, sometimes you'll have a child with blonde hair and blue eyes and, and then one with red hair and then one that's real dark complected with real dark brown eyes, and they're all, you know, full brother and sister. Absolutely. And, uh, it happens quite often with our group. And the, the other India thing, does not yeah, what in the least because um our results as a, as a tribal group as far as red bones go, that is basically our highest hit is India, all over India and uh so it it absolutely is relative to uh, your your suspicion of Melungeon and Redbone heritage because we we absolutely have found that the gypsy people were uh, here, brought here. Christopher Columbus brought I don't know how many on his third voyage and left them here. And then, uh-huh. you know, you had the fact you had inquisitional years in Europe and Spain and Portugal and France and and these people were exiles immediately. And and through my research of of the gypsy people uh, during inquisitional periods was that the inquisitional courts had found that the gypsy people had no religion at all. And so this actually gave them a lighter sentence than, say, pertained to Jewish people who were highly persecuted, uh, you know, for their religion. And so these kinds of people were brought by the boatloads, just like the Canary Islanders, into into Bear County to build the mission systems. And they, Mm -hmm. of course, immediately came here and and mixed with the indigenous people. And so uh, the India um, is is, uh, quite relevant to to your suspicion of Melungeon and... And uh, And then wasn't there a lot of indentured... Uh, indentured servants also come India. I believe the Weaver family, who uh, I think yeah. are intertwined with Pamunkey, aren't they also? That's uh, right. they, they're a very high degree of from India. Absolutely. Um, in fact, there are some documents that people like Dr. James Nickens have turned up, which specifically say, you know, the Weavers were of what of uh, East Asian or you know were. West Indies, excuse me, West Indies, which means India. And and we have, there was a woman in, in Florida who, uh, her husband passed away, and she, the county or whoever, came immediately and took her and her children and put them in slavery. And she was smart enough to understand where she was from. She was from India. She was a gypsy. And she produced to the, hired an attorney and produced to the court that she was who she was and, and that she stood to inherit his estate along with her children. And she did recover her family and, and most of her estate from her husband. But it was quite an ordeal, a court case. But um, mm. we have some West Indies living right there at Calcasieu Parish with us in Louisiana and some of these places like you were talking about, the Colberts and the Moniacs, um, were in the old fields in Alabama, and and they absolutely dumped gypsies in Old Mobile Bay by the boatloads. 
And so we also come across the people known as the brass ankles who might very well be the original progenating foremothers of most of the red bones. And now red bones are older than, are documented older than the Melungeons. So you're talking about a previous group to to even them. And, and I have a real strong suspicion and always have that the term brass ankles was Indian women and, and young boys, ch- young children who were indentured servants and they wore a brass anklet to identify themselves as, as hmm. you know, slaves, concubines, yeah. and so forth. Because this weaver... This Weaver DNA and the Nelson DNA and the Mitchell DNA and the Mark DNA, female maternal mtDNA, we really lucked out. In, in the early 1900s, a man uh, the, who was and a woman a king, the, known as the king and queen of the gypsies came, came to the United States from Brazil. They were hired. They were brought here by the United States government, and they were hired by our government to bring persecuted gypsies from other countries to the United States. And we matched this female DNA from the Weavers and the Mitchells and the Nels and the Ash Nash family and the Marks and this to that Mitchell couple. Both of them carried a specific female DNA, mtDNA, that matched the Moa Choctaw, the PD Indians, the Red Bones of Louisiana, the uh, the Melungeons of Tennessee. And so that's quite an astonishing, you know, we were really lucky to have these late migration of people, and then all of a sudden we've got this royal bloodlines of the gypsy people, and it shows up in nearly every one of our mtDNA results. So I have hmm. a strong suspicion that that those those concubinal women uh, and servants, uh, you know, indentured type servants or, or slave element, I, I'm not sure, uh, that came out of the Carolinas uh, as known as brass ankles were probably a, a, a huge amount of cast out, castaways from Europe of gypsy people. Because in my research, whenever I researched into what did the inquisitional courts do to they you know what was their sentence when they found them you know to be heretics and that needed to be ex, you know expelled from their country uh they found that the gypsy had no religion and that they the men and the young boys had their ears cut off and they were sentenced to hard labor in in the, their country their homeland and then the women and children under a certain age were beaten and banished from Europe. And so where would they go? They would come here to build the colonial system, mission systems, and that kind of thing. And so it, it, it's a, a sordid tale, uh, but uh, the same with the Mitchells that came from Brazil. They were outcast from Spain, and they took them to, to Brazil and they left them, the family there as, as slaves, indentured, you know, uh, people. And so uh, this does not surprise me that it all culminates back to uh, 
Now, and I did not mention to you, and I'm, do you know about the Adai, Adai Indians, the Adai Indians there at Natchitoches, Louisiana? Because you mentioned that hit to some of those Apaches and, and those local Indians in Texas. The Adai mm-hmm. Indians are kind of curious because I'm sure they mixed with the Red Bones. Do you know anything about them? No, I've heard that there was Lipan Apaches in uh Western Louisiana in the uh, neutral strip? Yes. I read that. Well, and... and but I'm not yeah, familiar with them. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a curious bunch because they actually are, were finding a match to that Lipin Apaches, which is said that the Red Bones get their noxious blood from the Apache. And... Um, but that the Lipin Apache had been a displaced Indian group who had been removed from from the southern tip of South America up to Texas and Louisiana coast, of course, to support the mission system. And so this is how the Lipin actually got to North America. And so, oh, wow. uh, but the Adai, yeah, the Adai Indians there at Natchitoches, Louisiana, mixed heavily with the uh, what we call the Appalachian Indian there at Rapides Parish. And so I was wondering if that might be included in that panel for that DNA, if those those had been included, but I'm not sure if you know that. No, I've never, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I've never seen that. But um, that uh, Omnipop that was developed by uh, Brian Burrett, with uh, San Diego Police Department, that was a another tool that could be used. You could take your markers and put them into their database, and it would it would tell you which, not only the group but each individual uh, study group that had been done. For example, um, they had Lumbee, they had uh, several other Native American groups, uh, such as Michigan Native American you know, just several individualized groups instead of just, you know, whether you were Native American, uh, yes or no, and what percent, it actually, it uh, it divides it into different, uh, you know, direct groups, which I thought was very useful and uh, more interesting to read, too. But, um, yeah, they, I, I don't know if it's still around. Uh, did you look it up to see if you can still download that Omnipop? Um, well, I did, and I included a link, but I will post another link, and it was uh, like a an updated, I think you said it was an elderly version of, of it, so I, I need yeah, to do a little one, more research. The last date I saw on it was 2008, but uh, nonetheless, yeah, it, was, uh, it was controversial because they used, um, uh, he used jail records, he used uh, state records, uh, some federal records. And some of those are self-identified. But I think the accuracy was still fairly decent. Uh, the the Lumbee, uh, two of my sisters also came up. It came up about as far as on the list. Uh, there's literally, I think, 350 different ethnicities and nationalities that they, they subgroup. And and it was about number 12 on my list. And then all my sisters, they also had high. One of them, had, I think, the number three was Lumbee for them. So they're, we know that we've got some 
common, you know, DNA with, with some of the Lumbee people. The Lumbee That's people were, were from several different areas, I think. Uh, some of them were Tuscarora, some possibly Chowan, uh, some were Shiraz. I think some people say even um, oh, Catawba, I believe, and, uh, yeah. and just several different things. Uh, there's, there's, they, they argue over which is the primary, you know, makeup. Um, I don't think anybody really knows, but we know that there's several known Native American groups there that are mixed together. Absolutely, and you see a lot of the yeah. same names. So that and, yeah, and the Omnipop you, is, is is a neat tool to use. Uh, it, I haven't looked it up recently to see if it's still available, but it's just if you if someone's using STR markers only from the DNA tribes, they can use that. They can't use it with the SNPs, unfortunately. From the right, newer tests, such right, as yeah. uh, 23andMe, uh, Ancestry, and Family Tree DNA, it all use the uh, SNP markers, so it's it's that's a, right. It, it would they wouldn't be able to use it on those, but I think you can kind of take it as a totality. The newer tests are getting better, but they uh, the database was lacking in Southeast Native American samples, especially. And some uh, geneticists said that there is a difference. They said Cherokee uh, had certain elements that would be different that you may not score because of the difference. So they said until the database actually shows more samples from them, that you're probably, you're, you're going to be at a very low score or zero, even even knowing that you have a, a, a pretty good trail and, you know, to Cherokee or other tribes. Absolutely. And as more uh, Native American groups test, uh, the more we'll have to to compare to, and I I implore everyone, you know, just to, you know, if you're into genealogy at all, and and you come from these mixed blood people, uh, the new tool is DNA as it applies to our genealogy, and we are discovering new things and and new cousins and making all sorts of connections, and so um, I hope that everyone encourage everyone to do some DNA testing. And so, um, also, I did want you to point out, I did want to point out that the Omnipop, when you did the Omnipop, which was a free thing um, developed by this this police officer, was he a police officer, did you say? I believe he was in uh, forensics with San Diego Police Department. I see, okay. Um, uh, compared to direct consumer that you would pay for autosomal testing, that you're Comparatively, they were close, correct? Yeah, and then the yeah, that's that's a good point. The the newer tests, I'm I'm not showing any Native American. The older tests, I was, and uh, you know, I think in the future, what's going to happen is Ancestry.com and some other companies, but they're of course they're the number one right now. Uh, what will happen? People will be able to do DNA tests. They're autosomal. Uh, mitochondrial and Y-DNA, and then uh, they'll basically, once they submit it, uh, they'll go online, and it'll just show all the different families that they're related to. And I know it's I know it's pretty accurate on some of those cousins because I've got a cousin on there that I never met, but her, um, her father 
was my great grandfather's uh, brother. So you know, right. I didn't even know this person. It showed her as a third cousin, and it was a you know, it's a fairly close relationship. Sure. So absolutely, uh, we know we know there is there is some pretty good accuracies. There's some others that may not be as as strong as that that you can't figure out how they're related. But um, there are some that that there's no doubt about it that uh, it hit right on. That's fabulous. So I think that's going to be really nice for people to, if they don't want to do the research, they'll be able to just submit their DNA, and within a few weeks. They'll get on Ancestry.com and just look at all the photos and, and family trees of their actual family. I think it eventually right. it, will, it will come. To that. And uh, it's getting closer I already. Think... I'm finding photos Absolutely. of different family members that people are digging out and putting on there that I, some of them I've never seen before. So it's Isn't really that nice. Just... It really is, it, it, and it brings it home, and it says, hey, you know, it's not just a name on a piece of paper. Here's their actual picture, and, and of course, people all can always fill in gaps sometimes. You know, you meet a third cousin who can fill in gaps for their family, and, and you just keep adding to your family tree, and it is very exciting. I, I'm glad. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today, Tom, and we're going to have to invite you back and do another show because I know you have so many connections with the Melungeons and the Red Bones and uh, the Dominickers there in North Florida or uh, the Porch Creek Indians, and and we work with with Stephen Pony Hill, and, of course, this show is usually uh, hosted uh, by um, Scott Seawall and his Legacy and Identity show. And so I was glad to fill in for him this week. And I'm so glad I got to speak with you. And I would love to get together further on uh, looking at genealogy with you and, and seeing where we couldn't plug in some things possibly and, and make some matches. And um, any final thoughts that you have for, for researchers out there as far as um, – you know, uh, searching for their their family through uh, genealogy and DNA. Well, we'll give you the last word, and then I'm going to have a few updates on Casey Powell's new book coming out, Back in Time, that's going to work on um, Chasing Justice. And so I will make some final comments on Chasing Justice from Casey Powell and uh, give us any of your final thoughts or anecdotes or um Advice. Okay. Well, I, I sure appreciate you letting me be on. And um, your name has been in this for several years, so um, I'm sure a lot of people know as you start to research Redbone, Melungeon, Saponi, and a lot of these other groups, you're, there's a, a huge controversy. Certain people will, will claim dissent, you know, for whatever reason, whatever their motive is, and They'll, they'll kind of divide groups, and there'll be people arguing over it. And then you have honest researchers like yourself, uh, Gabe, uh, Pony Hill, several others that are, are doing honest, hard research. I mean, going through actual records and spent years doing it. And the, the, there's so many books being sold that people, they like these people to be considered a mystery people because that sells books. But it's all being unraveled, and you, you guys have done so much research that, uh, you know, for a long time I was really confused, and it, it, it just seems like it's all coming together now. So, I, you know, I appreciate your research and, 
and uh, it's just really nice to see somebody that's devoted, you know, so much of their life to do this because it is really important for our our descendants to continue to know their lineage. And there's a lot of families where it's lost, and uh, you know they they really don't know where they came from. And some of these old, our older relatives, as as they pass away, if if someone wasn't willing to spend the time to get the information that sometimes leads us to the the right direction, uh, once they're gone, and I, I and I guess a good example would be the the photo album that was in my family um, once. Most of my relatives that, that knew who they were passed away. All we know is that they're family, and nobody's identified those photos. So it's, it's really sad that, that no one was willing to take the time to make notation. And the, the people that knew who they were didn't think anything about it because they knew them. Right, right. They knew those people exactly. in the photo. They don't think of doing that. And I'm, I'm probably just as bad. I've got photos where, you know, that we, I took of my family that some people, you know, down the road wouldn't know who they were if I didn't make a notation. So, but that's, that's just one of those things that, that there's, it's good that there's somebody in, in each family that is uh, preserving things and in, investigating, you know, where, where our people came from and it's all coming together. It's uh, like I say, there's certain, certain groups out there that are, they're, they're trying to dissuade people from the, what, what the facts are. And yeah, you you be doing Absolutely. a really good job, and so keep up the good work. Well, thank thank you so much, Tom. I, it has been a life's work for me, but I enjoy it every day. I wake up and I say, you know, who am I going to find today? And I can add them to my family. And uh, who am I going to help with their with their history and their genealogy? And you're correct. It seems like the, the this great puzzle or mystery that surrounds these people. We have we have certain people who who are caused divisiveness, and and but we can't help what our DNA says, and we can't help. Um, we can't change that. What we can only do is say, look, you know, uh, the spin stops here and we're going to look at things at a, at a, at a real, and an analysis of, of the actual findings of DNA and genealogy and legend. And that's what I'm going to invite you to speak to us about uh, at the next one is the legend surrounding your families, because I know you have so many stories that were just fascinating, fabulous tales that you and I were able to discuss at length yesterday. I would just love to hear more, and I know our listeners would as well. And thank you again for sure. being here, and I hope you'll join us again. Um, I've got, got, yeah, got a quick um, – go ahead. Good. I'll just say in the old days when no. I started doing genealogy, probably in around 1982 approximately, you'd go to the uh, libraries and the, uh, the Latter-day Saints usually had libraries in the big cities that you could go to and research. And, and the main focus I always saw people looking for was trying to prove royalty. That was it. They yeah. just wanted to prove that they were from royal lineage. I thought it was always funny. And I, I'm trying to prove, uh, you know, just the opposite. I'm, trying, I'm looking at families that were off the beaten path that um, – you know, little documentation, harder, you know, the mystery, trying to prove a mystery or solve a mystery is uh, is a lot of fun. So, you know, that's all part of it. So thanks again, though. 
not all of us could come from royal lines. And so, uh, yes, it, it, the perspective of genealogy and lineage has certainly changed with our generation. We're not looking for all of those kings and queens sitting on a throne somewhere. We're looking for these people who were, uh, you know, part of the village and, and part of the community that possibly wasn't elitist. And so we we really changed the perspectives there. And I appreciate you as well uh, for all the hard effort and work that you've done and your detective. Because to me, whenever I speak to you, because you are a police officer and you're, you, you have, you have these, questions who what when where why and how can I prove this and so that is always a great perspective to have uh going into this and thank you again Tom right if you had to stand before a judge and jury and present your evidence of your bloodline how what kind of evidence do you have and how would other people you know you know peers how would they look at that evidence so that's one way to look at things I tell people when you're you're presenting something just family legend alone. Uh, that's that's good, but I think it needs to be there needs to be a totality, you know, including your you know yeah. your DNA, your genealogy, you know, just you know the, the family photos, everything. So, all right. Well, thanks again. Uh, thank you. And I've just got a few more. Um, uh, just one little update on Casey Powell. Casey Powell has, has turned out to be a really good friend of mine here in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and she is an attorney. And she has several cases that she is writing um, a book, books about, and it's called Chasing Justice. There's a series of books. And her first one is A Brother's Love. And this story is quite interesting. It's based on the true accounting of the live death and ensuing court cases over the estate of Keith Chandler. Um, he was from here in Crittenden County, Kentucky. Uh, his family farm and home had been owned by his family for over 200 years, and, and that was lost in one generation. And so uh, the story, this is the story of his brother. Uh, his name was Steve Chandler and his relentless quest to seek justice for his little brother and to clear his family's name. She's also got another book called, um, the, I, we haven't named this, she hasn't named this book yet, uh, but I just gave it a t- title of Mohan Saga, which is actually the story that, and in, in, in which Casey and I, how we met, because we both, uh, I was a victim of Clay Mohan, and her uh, client was a victim, of course, a much more serious victim of a modern-day con artist in the United States. And she has a a United States Supreme Court writ uh, for Cassie Stevenson, the death of Anthony Stevenson. Um, He was working for Clay Mohan and was run over by a tractor in a Bush hog, and so it's a very sad case here in in Hopkinsville, and she's been after this guy for a number of years, and I don't think she's going to give up, and and I think he is of, uh, it's an interesting tale of of how a modern day con artist would work in the United States. Thank you for joining us, everyone, and we look forward to the next Legacy and Identity show. Will be in two weeks. Um, I'm not sure of the date yet. Let's see. It would be July 7th. And so, everyone, we hope we wish everyone a happy 4th of July and stay safe and enjoy your family and your heritage. Thank you. See you next time. <laughs>